0: Matthew chapter 25, we begin in verse 31. This is Christ now speaking. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a sheep divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, "Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger and ye gave me meat; I was thirsty and ye gave me drink; I was a stranger and ye took me in; naked and ye clothed me." I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger and ye gave me no meat, I was thirsty and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger and ye took me not in. Naked and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word, for his namesake. If I could call your attention to verse 32 from the portion we just read. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. I mentioned earlier in the announcements that this past week I attempted to facilitate Richard Craig, our man in Jamaica, in his class on eschatology. Eschatology being the study of last things, prophecy, if you will. It wasn't easy since I didn't have a good internet connection. The call dropped a few times, my image froze on his screen, and my voice broke up several times. We did manage, however, to discuss a few things based on the lectures he had viewed, not the least of which was the doctrine of hell. We bandied about such questions as, Where is hell? Some like to think of it as being in the middle of the earth. Is it actually there? When we read of people descending into hell, is that a literal geographical location where the domain of the damned actually is? Or is the lake of fire a literal lake of fire? And really, when you stop and think about it, What is a literal lake of fire? Have you ever seen a literal lake of fire? And the thing that we came to conclude was that these are images that God has seen fit to communicate to us with in order to convey the message, the sober and somber message that hell is an awful place. Whether you want to take these things literally, whether you want to try to pin down a geographical location, which I don't believe you can do. But the point is that hell is a terrible place, and it's very real. By the time we were done with our discussion, I pretty much uh, had to end it early because of the poor connection. But notwithstanding the technical challenges of the class, I found myself very sobered by the reminder of hell. It's not really something people dwell on much. The world certainly doesn't want to think about it, except to deny it. And even Christians don't find it to be something that they care to think on much. Not long after this class I was reminded of a man years ago who had written a book that denied the doctrine of hell. This man took the stance that in the end, everybody gets to go to heaven. Or he was at least trying to pave the way for that possibility. I was reminded also of a pastor who had lost his job because he agreed with the teaching of that book. Listen to this quote from that pastor. This was a United Methodist pastor, and he writes, We do these somersaults to justify the monster God we believe in. But confronting my own sinfulness, that's when things started to topple for me. Am I really going to be saved just because I believe something when all these good people in the world aren't? To think that that man's a pastor is really quite astonishing. And what a telling statement. There is one thing in the statement that I would agree with, that I would find to be very true. He acknowledges his own sinfulness, and in acknowledging his own sinfulness, he finds it repulsive, the idea that he would go to heaven simply because he believes something when everybody else believes something else. Almost as if it's a guessing game. I remember actually speaking to somebody, and uh, uh, I don't remember exactly when this was, but this man's uh, uh, approach to religion was, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I hope I'm guessing right. And, uh, well, I'm afraid if it's a guess to you, you're probably not guessing right. But do you see the glaring error to the statement of that man's, uh, that that he's written? He's treating faith or belief as if that were somehow the meritorious cause for going to heaven. He goes to heaven simply because he believes something. He's treating faith as if it's the meritorious cause for a person going to heaven. If that were true, then this former pastor's complaint might have some validity to it. Why should I go to heaven for believing this, and everybody else believes something else, and they don't get to go to heaven? The thing we have to bear in mind here, folks, is that faith is not, nor has it ever been, the meritorious cause for people going to heaven. Christ is the meritorious cause. No one will go to heaven for the merit of believing anything. Sinners can only go to heaven based on the merit of Christ. He's the judicial cause. He's the grounds upon which people enter into heaven. Faith is simply the means through which we confess Christ's merit and disown any merit of our own. Well, not long after that book was written and that pastor was fired, there was a Jewish rabbi who... Sometimes, I don't know if this is the case anymore, but at that time he made appearances on Fox News. And he made reference to that book and to that pastor. Listen to what he said. Whether Holtz, that's the pastor, and Bell that's the author, whether Holtz and Bell are correct or not about who gets into heaven and who will go to hell is not something which anyone can know. It's a matter of faith. Debating which understanding is is actually true is just silly. Not because the question is unimportant, it matters to millions of people, but because there is no way to determine which answer is correct while we reside in this world. So according to that Jewish rabbi, concern for the eternal destiny of your soul is silly. Or it's not silly, only because of the number of people that think it's important, but it is silly, according to this rabbi, because there's no way you can know. When I read remarks like that coming from a Jewish rabbi, it leads me to conclude that That rabbi's religion can only be a religion of blasphemy and bondage. It's blasphemous to call issues of eternity silly, and it's bondage to have to go through life with no assurance of where you're headed in the afterlife. Why anyone would follow that man's religion is beyond me. He seems to have little or nothing to offer. Now, in the portion of Scripture we've just read, from Matthew 25, we're brought to a time, we see the scene ahead of us, where no one will think that the issues of judgment and the afterlife are silly. There is one thing, you see, that those on Christ's left hand have in common with those on his right hand. There's a great divide, obviously, But both categories have at least one thing in common. The thing they have in common is that on that occasion, every one of them will be a believer. Men may succeed in fooling themselves in this life when it comes to the issues of judgment. They may think that by labeling such notions as silly, they can succeed in suppressing the knowledge of God that is stamped on their hearts. But on the occasion of our text, there will be no room for delusion or suppression. All the nations shall be gathered. We read in verse 32. Revelation 20 is even more vivid. So we read in verse 12 of that chapter. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And a couple of verses down we read, verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Certainly nothing silly in those verses, is there? It's only by denying the plain teaching of Scripture that a man is left to speculative and uncertain ambiguities about these things. The testimony of Scripture is really too plain to even be called controversial. Men who, is, who seek to escape the plain teaching of Scripture should be honest enough to acknowledge and to say that it's too undesirable. Not that it's too controversial. And there are two things that are undesirable to people of this persuasion. Hell is undesirable, and Christ is undesirable. Well, let's look then this morning at the teaching of this section in Matthew 25, on this doctrine. But let's look at the passage with a specific aim in view. Your focus should be on this question. How can I aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell? How can I aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell? So with that focus in view, let's see what the passage teaches. And the first thing I'd have you see in order to aim for heaven and avoid hell is, one, you must face the reality of both you're going to aim for heaven, seek to avoid hell, you must acknowledge the reality of both. Listen again to the words of verses 31 and 32 and ask yourself, is there anything difficult to understand in these words? When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory And before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Those verses confirm the united testimony of Scripture that Christ will come again in his glory. This is the blessed hope of the believer You could also call it, I suppose, the cursed dread of the unbeliever. A day of judgment is coming, and that day is conspicuous by the glory of Christ. In his first coming into this world, he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. There was nothing about him, in other words, that made him necessarily recognizable in his physical appearance as the Messiah. We read of that in Isaiah 53. But in his second coming, everything about him makes him conspicuous. He's described in his glory by John on the Isle of Patmos, with hair white like wool, as white as snow, Revelation 1.14, with eyes as a flame of fire. I thought upon that expression concerning his eyes as a flame of fire. I think you could draw the application from eyes as a flame of fire that they are eyes that can see right through every sinner's actions, right down into the very depths of his heart. There will be no fooling this judge. There is no pulling the wool over his eyes, so to speak. And his feet, like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters verse 15 the glory of Christ on this occasion the occasion of his return is such that the earth itself will not be able to abide his presence so peter writes in second peter chapter 3 and verse 10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now we get something of a glimpse of what it will be like when Christ returns when we consider how the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai in his glory We have the account of that in Exodus chapter 19, of how that mountain could barely stand the glory of his presence. The mountain quaked and was on fire, and it was unapproachable. And when redemption is consummated and Christ returns in his glory, the earth in its present state will not be able to abide the glory of his presence. It will be burned up, according to Peter. And those that have rebelled against Christ will feel a degree of exposure that they've never felt before. They would rather be buried beneath the rubble of the earth and the mountains, the book of Revelation makes known to us, but instead they, and indeed we all, must stand before Christ. And would you notice from our text, Matthew 25, 32, that Christ will conduct the dividing of the nations into two categories, sheep and goats, those on his right hand and those on his left, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And would you take note of the very solemn and sobering and unmistakably plain truth in Matthew 25 that not everybody enters into heaven. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And a few verses further down, verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Now tell me, is there anything in these verses That is hard to understand. I dare say that no interpretation is needed. They speak so plainly. They interpret themselves. There may be one matter, perhaps, in verse 46, that on the surface of it might be a little bit puzzling, and evidently that minister I referenced in my introduction had trouble with this, Notice that it says in verse 46 that it is the righteous that enter life eternal. The righteous. Who in the world are they? Do we not know the equally plain statement of Paul in Romans 3 and verse 10? That there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. No one who is righteous. Oh, we might find it easier to affirm the universal condemnation rather than universal salvation because we know in our own experience, as well as from Scripture's, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet we read of the righteous in Matthew 25. It is the righteous that enter into life. I can't deny it rules me out. Based on my own merit, what about you? And yet it is precisely at this point that the gospel must enter the picture. I love the words of Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. The Lord himself is the source of our righteousness, the righteousness of the believer. That's what that verse tells us. That's the message of the entire Bible. Jehovah said, you, the Lord, our righteousness. The difference between those on the right hand of Christ and those on the left hand of Christ is that those on his left hand refuse to acknowledge that their own righteousness was as filthy rags. They either deluded themselves into thinking that their personal righteousness was adequate, or they deluded themselves into thinking what the modern-day Jewish rabbi thinks, that the whole matter is just plain silly. Well, oh, I mean to tell you it won't be silly on that day when righteousness is required for heaven and those on Christ's left hand have no Righteousness. Those on the right hand won't have adequate righteousness for heaven either. But the difference between them and the others will be that they have acknowledged, they have been willing to admit that they have no righteousness. They've humbled themselves enough to recognize that their own righteousness is, as scriptures say, as filthy rags. In the words of the Beatitude, they have hungered and thirsted for righteousness because they've seen their own lack of it. And then in simple faith, they have received Christ's righteousness. This righteousness comes as a gift. Paul refers to it as a gift in Romans 5 and verse 17. I think this is probably the only verse in all the Bible that so clearly designates righteousness as a gift. This is the gift that comes when a sinner receives Christ. It is on account of this imputed righteousness, this gift of righteousness received by faith, that enables the text to say in verse 46 that the righteous enter into eternal life. Those that have received the gift of righteousness, those that have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, they are the righteous. And would you note the common element between life and death in these verses is that both are eternal. Eternal life, it says, verse 46, everlasting fire, It says, verse 41, everlasting punishment. Verse 46. So in terms of duration, what is said about life must also be said about death. What is said about the reward of life must be said about the punishment of death. Both are eternal. Neither are temporal. If you would aim for heaven and avoid hell, therefore... You must face the reality of both. You may choose to adopt the course of that Jewish rabbi and suppress the knowledge of the truth by trying to label the whole issue as speculative silliness. Or you may try to take the position of that author who would bring everyone into heaven and would have God conform himself to his sentimental whims and wishes better by far to let the scriptures speak for themselves, in which case you'll have to face the truth that heaven is real and hell is real and the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. So we see the truth of heaven and hell. Would you consider with me next that if you would aim for heaven and avoid hell, then you must allow the truth to impact your life. Don't dismiss it. Don't treat it casually. Open your heart to it. Ask God to mold your life in conformity to it. Those on Christ's right hand are said by Christ to have fed him when he was hungry and thirsty and to have taken him in when he was a stranger and to have clothed him and visited him when he was sick or when he was in prison. And the thing that is somewhat fascinating about this portion in Matthew 25 is the way these sheep respond to Christ. When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee, They ask in verses 38 and 39, to which Christ answers, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now I don't think there would have been any doubt in the minds of the sheep about the deeds that are here described. It won't be so much that they don't remember the deeds. The situation will be such that they simply had no idea of the way Christ identifies himself with his sheep. What is done for Christ's people is done for Christ himself. And what this amounts to at the end of the day is faith. Faith in Christ, but not merely faith. But faith in action. Faith in Christ that in accordance with the standard of James' epistle demonstrates itself by service to others. Especially service to the Lord's people. Here then is where the final issue of judgment becomes very practical. You want your Lord's approval on that day. You want to hear Christ's commendation. You want to enter into the joy of the Lord on that day. How do you prepare for that day? How do you aim for heaven? (coughs) It begins, obviously, with faith in Christ. I lean wholly on him. I trust in him alone. In receiving him, you receive his righteousness. And in receiving his righteousness, you also receive forgiveness for sins based on his atoning death but then you demonstrate your faith in him by serving others, especially other Christians. You cannot serve Christ without serving Christ's people. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that you don't really believe in Christ if you don't have a faith that demonstrates itself by service to others, especially other Christians. Here, then, is how we make ourselves rich toward God. Here is how we may store up treasure in heaven. We we serve each other. We take one another to heart. We bear one another's burdens. We pray for each other. We give to each other. We rejoice with each other when we have occasion to rejoice. And we weep with each other when there is cause to weep. You begin to see why we need each other. Apart from each other, we have no outlet for ministering to Christ. Kind of interesting, isn't it, that those on Christ's left hand are not scrutinized on this occasion for the wickedness of their sins. And I'm not now denying that there will be accountability for sin, but the thing in this judgment scene that Christ is seen fit to reveal is their sins of omission, the things that they failed to do. (coughs) They failed to serve Christ. Such failure is obviously traceable to the absence of their faith in Christ, an absence that is revealed not so much from the standpoint of animosity toward Christ as it is indifference toward Christ. They simply gave him no thought, and therefore gave him no service. And in the end, they're condemned for their sins. How clear then the issue becomes in aiming for heaven and seeking to avoid hell. You can aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell by trusting in Christ with a faith that will lead you to serve others, especially believers. You aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell by seeing the closeness with which Christ identifies with his people and then act accordingly. And so you see that you can aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell by facing the truth of both. The knowledge of heaven and hell serves to compel you to cultivate greater faith in Christ and to strive harder against sin. Sin, after all, is what makes us worthy candidates of hell. And sin is what called for Christ's atoning death. If you can see where sin was taking you and what sin did to your Savior, then you'll strive harder for righteousness and you'll strive harder to conquer sin. Your knowledge of heaven and hell can serve to motivate you in such a path. The doctrine of universalism, on the other hand, can serve to excuse you from Christian duty and to excuse you from any missionary activity and to excuse you from any burden for the lost. (coughs) Oh, may the Lord himself stamp the reality of heaven and hell on your heart, and may the impact of the doctrine find its practical application in the way you live. One more point I must make with regard to aiming for heaven and avoiding hell, and it's this. If you would aim for heaven and avoid hell, you must see that the ultimate difference between them is Christ. The ultimate difference between heaven and hell is Christ, Christ himself. I realize I've anticipated this point somewhat in remarks I already made about service to Christ gaining heaven, the absence of service to Christ gaining hell, Where you spend eternity will, in large measure, be determined by your answer to the question, "What think ye of Christ?" I might go a step further here in pointing out that the universalists—and you know what I mean by that term, I trust—the universalists—they're the ones that think now everyone's going to heaven. Period. Doesn't matter if you believe the gospel. Doesn't matter if you've heard the gospel. Doesn't matter. If you've worshipped false gods, in the end, everyone's in heaven. Those are the ones that I'm referring to now as universalists. And the point I'm now making is that universalists really do disservice even to Christ rejectors, by assigning them a place in heaven with Christ. You didn't believe in him. You didn't want to serve him. And yet you're going to be in heaven with him? The truth is, there's no place they'd rather not be than heaven where Christ reigns. Heaven, you see, is the place where Christ is worshipped. Makes for interesting conversations, doesn't it? And I imagine Richard Craig and I will have some of these, and I've had some of them with uh, others and some people here even. What are we going to do in heaven A new heaven and a new earth. What kind of activities are going to take place there? And uh, so much we don't know. We know it'll be wonderful. We know it'll be glorious. But uh, some things we don't know. You know, some of the things that I love to do here on earth that are legitimate things, will there be a place for me to do them in the new heaven, the new earth? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I couldn't say for sure, but this much I can say with absolute certainty that in heaven, Christ will be worshiped. Christ rejectors hate worshiping Christ. They don't mind worshiping themselves, or they don't mind worshiping things in this world that they find pleasurable to the flesh. But not in their wildest dreams do they picture themselves worshiping Christ, and not in their wildest desires do they have the desire to worship Christ. Can you envision anyone in heaven who hated Christ on earth and will continue to hate him in heaven? Sinners, you see, are in love with their sin. In heaven there is no sin. In heaven there is complete and perfect Submission to Christ. In heaven, the Ten Commandments are obeyed. Christ rejectors have no desire to submit to anyone. It's a part of their sinful nature that they expect the world to revolve around them. They desire to be the focal point of the universe, but in heaven, Christ is the one that draws the attention of others. So authors that deny hell do no favors to Christ rejecters. Sinners will persist in their hatred of Christ, and heaven itself would be as hell to them if they were forced to go there. They are revealed in the Gospels, the Christ rejecters, as those that weep and gnash their teeth at Christ. And that gnashing of teeth is, is a a figure of speech that just uh, describes and paints the picture of um, uh, intense hatred towards someone who is the object of their teeth gnashing. And I've made the point before that one of the reasons that hell is forever is because sin is forever. In hell, sinners are given completely over to their sin, In this world, there is grace that acts as a force to restrain sin. In hell, there is no restraining grace. This, to me, is one of the most dreadful aspects of hell. Imagine being given over to the wickedness of your own heart. Believers, on the other hand, love to worship Christ. They acknowledge the value of Christ and his atoning death. Their chief end is to glorify and enjoy Christ and heaven will be the place where they'll be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of Christ forever. You know, it occurs to me just now that there is a sense in which church is a foretaste of heaven. Do you think of it that way? Oh, I'm so anxious to get to church this morning. It's going to be heavenly. We're going to be engaged in a glorious practice there. We're going to worship Christ. We're going to raise our voices to Him in praise and thanksgiving. We're going to meet with Him. It's going to be a taste of heaven. Do you see it that way? I I hope you do, or I hope you will. You know, Gird yourself up to view it that way. That's how it should be viewed. This is a foretaste of heaven. The worship of Christ. It'll be much better, obviously, in heaven. But this is a foretaste of it, nevertheless. Most willingly will believers submit to Christ, and the easiest thing in heaven to do will be to cast any crowns we've earned at the feet of Christ, knowing as we do and will that unto him belongs the honor and glory throughout the ages. And so by affirming the truth of heaven and hell, we affirm the truth of the character of God. We magnify his justice. We comprehend in some measure the splendor of his holiness. We confess his sovereign rule, and we indeed even magnify his love. It's only by understanding this vast contrast between heaven and hell that we are able to appreciate What Christ has delivered us from, as well as what Christ has delivered us to. I wonder then this morning if you're able and willing to acknowledge the truth of heaven and hell. The only way you can aim for heaven and seek to avoid hell is by acknowledging the truth of both. I remember years ago, when I was a very young Christian, I worked with a man who prided himself in being kind of a philosophical intellectual. And he said to me on one occasion, how can I go to hell if I don't even believe in hell? Could anything be more foolish? Could he really be so foolish as to think that God's existence and God's truth depends on him and what he decides to believe oh heaven is real hell is real and the gospel of Christ is true I hope you gather that from this message this morning if you come away with nothing else come away with this heaven is real hell is real and the gospel of Christ is true And the way to aim for heaven and avoid hell is to respond to the invitation of the gospel and come to Christ. The universalists do touch upon some measure of truth by saying that God is not desirous that anyone go to hell. He has made costly provision in the blood of his son for sinners to escape hell. I hope and trust then that all that are under the sound of my voice today will escape hell. You can only do so on God's terms. And God's terms are to acknowledge your sin and believe in His Son. Oh, may the Lord so strike your heart that you find yourself compelled to honor Christ by repenting of your sins and fleeing to His Son. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this message to a close, or this service to a close, we thank thee for the provision thou hast made for sinners to be saved. Lord, these things are indeed very sobering and yet so clearly revealed in thy word that we dare not deny them. To do so would only put our souls in peril. May we instead be moved to reverence and awe at the majesty and splendor and holiness and justice and love of God. And may we marvel at the provision that God has made by sending his son to die on Calvary's cross that we might escape hell and be brought into heaven forever. So, Lord, stamp thy word on each and every heart and compel any who are lost to face the truth and to flee to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.